Dad, why did she get more bacon than I got? I know you are, but what am I? These are all sorts of sounds that if you have been around or have been yourself a sibling, you are aware of, right? We know what sibling rivalry can look like and how kids can just really get on each other's nerves. And really, sometimes it lasts a little longer than we desire, right? I think sometimes uh, some of us have had the personal experience of getting to be 25, 30 years old and discovering that he stole my toy was actually a much deeper uh, rooted thing, right? That has continued into adulthood where you're just not getting along with your brother or sister. And brothers and sisters just fight. It's uh, uh, the way it is. Often that fight is around one very specific word. What word might that be? Any guesses? Yeah, because it's not fair, right? This is the, the, the bane of all parents' existence, the idea that everything has to be fair. I fight with my mom. She goes, I need to get them each something so it's fair. And I said, no, mom, you should make one of them suffer so they learn that life's not fair and get over it, right? I mean, because there's this thing of I th this has got to be fair. I should be treated the way my sibling is treated. And this kind of a rivalry can be um, a complication, a difficulty for many families. The Bible gives us a very famous story of a sibling rivalry, uh, the story of Jacob and Esau. Scripture tells us that Jacob and Esau were literally fighting in the womb, okay? As they are being born, they are twins. Uh, they don't look like twins, right? But they're twins. As they are coming out of the womb, literally Jacob is grabbing the heel of his brother from their wrestling match as they were moving through the birth canal, right? Because this is the kind of way that these boys interacted. Jacob is the younger, scrawnier conniving, lying, cheating brother, okay? And Esau is the brave, courageous, uh, burly, hairy, manly, older brother. Uh, if you want some thought ways to compare this, uh, I thought I was trying to think of good brother pairs. Um, if you know Thor and Loki, the comic book characters, it is Thor and Loki exactly. Loki is the trickster and Thor is the, the brute, and this is kind of the pair. Uh, also, if you know Robin Hood well or medieval history, right? King Richard the Lionhearted, who left to go uh, fight in the Crusades. And his brother is King John the Whiny, right? In the, in the Disney version, King uh, Richard is the lion with a big mane who goes off to war. And his brother is the scrawny little lion that cheats and steals and who Robin Hood is always fighting. This is the kind of pair that we have. Uh, Jacob mistreats Esau in lots of ways. Now, don't get me wrong. Esau is a dumb oaf, okay? If you read these stories, Esau has all the muscle and none of the brain power. And so, uh, as you hear their stories, Jacob manages to find Esau very hungry and gets his birthright for a bowl of soup. And he does this because Esau is a fool. Um, later on, Jacob actively deceives his father Isaac, dresses up like Esau so that he can get the birthright or the blessing from the father. And he tricks his brother out of both his blessing and his birthright. All the older brother stuff, Jacob literally lies his way into. 
Jacob then goes on and tricks his uncle and tricks all sorts of people in other lands. I mean, he is just constantly lying and cheating and scheming his way into incredible wealth and the blessing of the Lord. And you can appreciate why Esau would say, that is so unfair. Uh, what you may not know is this rivalry doesn't stop with the brothers. Uh, the Bible tells us that Esau's descendants become a kingdom called Edom. And so Edom is right down here on our map. Um, over here is Israel and Judah, the promised land. And so over the years, this sibling rivalry continues for centuries and centuries and centuries as Judah and Israel, the descendants of Jacob, fight against Edom, the descendants of Esau. And there's always this kind of rivalry between the two of them. And the interesting thing is Scripture tells us that the treatment of Esau and Edom is unfair and it's supposed to be unfair. This is a famous passage out of Malachi, the quotation here is in Romans because Paul re, uh, restates this in Romans. The Bible says, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. And those are the words of God. Because the idea is it is an example of God's sovereign choice. God chose Jacob to be the promised child, not because he was stronger or better or more moral or any of those things. He just, he just chose him. And Esau was not chosen. Jacob was. And you just got to get over it. That is the past, that's the way that both Malachi and Paul use this scripture to say if God chooses to bless somebody, that's his prerogative. And you don't get to fuss about it. Which immediately, I can see your eyeballs. Some of you are fussing about it in your head right now. And that's okay. What I want to point out, though, is it's not fair. And that is why when Jerusalem is destroyed, Edom throws a party. Okay, now we're fast-forwarding. These brothers lived about 1200 B.C. We're going to fast-forward 600 years to 586. And the Babylonians come into town. They destroy Jerusalem. They destroy the kingdom of Judah. They destroy the descendants of Jacob. And so the descendants of Esau do what any sibling would do when their other sibling is suffering, and they laugh a little bit, and they have a good time with it, right? It seemed to the Edomites that finally justice was being served. You have lorded over us your superiority and how great you are and how much God loves you and how promised you are. You have a promised land, promised people, blah, 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 blah. And finally, God has given you what's coming. And the Edomites throw a party when Jerusalem is sacked because finally there is justice in the universe. It's a, uh, it's a practice of something we, uh, you guys know this word, schadenfreude? It's great. It's a German word. It's sad that we don't have a word for this in English. Uh, apparently there's words for it. E even Hebrew has a word for this. Schadenfreude is when you take joy over someone else's suffering. Yep, exactly. That's, that's right there in the language. It's, it's shame joy. And so uh, this happens most with celebrities, Right. Um, if there is a celebrity who has just been a real jerk in the media and is always acting like they're too cool for everybody else and, you know, it's just kind of in the tabloids as being a rude, bad, mean person and then they end up <laughs> – 
getting arrested or going to rehab, everyone's like, yep, he had that coming, right? It's schadenfreude. Finally, they get it. Uh, we do this a lot in sports, right? Uh, I talked to many people this week when they found out I was new from New England who said that they were Cowboys fans first, anyone who's playing against the Patriots second, right? And they do schadenfreude. Where every time, you know, when Tom Brady was suspended, people were jumping around and throwing parties and having parades. Finally, those guys got what's coming to them. And this is a thing that many of us do. We may not be proud of it, but the reality is that often we experience it. Where when we have someone we do not like who we think has been bad to us and they get what's coming to them, we're ecstatic that it's finally happened. And our book today, our story, is going to be from the book of Obadiah. So if you're joining us, we are doing this series on books of the Bible we never talk about. All right? And today is Obadiah. It is one of these lovely books that is so short, it is only one chapter. So it looks really weird. You'll notice the scripture reference, this is Obadiah 10. Because there's only, it's verse 10. There's only verses. There's no chapters. It's a very short book. Excuse me. And it's a very short book about the Edomite response to the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. As you can expect, there's not a whole lot of sermons written about that, right? And Obadiah here talks to Edom, the descendants of Esau, about the way they gloat when Jerusalem is destroyed. Because of the violence against your brother, Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On that day, you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. Um, Obadiah is not particularly happy with the way that Edom has responded here, right? They have just mocked the Israelites. Nana, nana, boo, boo, you finally got it. I mean, they respond the way you would expect a five and three-year-old to respond to the sibling rivalry. And Obadiah states very clearly, this isn't cool. This is not okay. This isn't right. These people are your brothers, quite literally, and you should not be happy no matter what your history is and just take such joy and glee over the bad things that are happening to them. Uh, that is the message of the book in totality. You have now read about half of all of Obadiah. And it could seem like, as you're doing a series like this, well, why are we talking about this? I need something applicable to my life. Why are you bugging me with Obadiah and the Edomites on a Sunday morning? So let me ask you some questions. How did you respond when you saw on the news that Osama bin Laden had been shot? When you saw Saddam Hussein's statue tumble in Iraq, did you laugh? When um, you see before and after pictures on the news, this is what Syria looked like before we bombed them, and this is what it looked like 
after we bomb them, do you say, yeah, we got them? Uh, we live in a country that, to quote the uh, great poet Toby Keith, believes putting a boot in your rear end, it's the American way. And we get real excited about that. The challenge for us as we read Obadiah is do you love your country so much that you love it when it blows up other countries? Now, this is really hard, okay? Because remember, I started the sermon by pointing out Edom was not treated fairly by Judah, okay? This is not about justice. The scripture is very clear that Esau was cheated by Jacob. That Edom's entire national history was getting the raw end of the deal from God himself compared to his brother Jacob. It's not about justice. And you know, it's not even about desiring justice. None of those things I mentioned, am I trying to complain about policy or am I trying to say that it's not the right thing to do? It's not that I uh, want to fuss at our politicians about making those choices. Now, we could have excellent uh, polytheology chats, right, about just war and is there such a thing and should Christians support it or capital punishment? How do we deal with people who do evil things, right? Those are really good ethical discussions we should have, but that is not the point of Obadiah. The point of Obadiah is not whether or not Jerusalem should have been destroyed because the prophets are very clear Jerusalem deserves to be destroyed by the Babylonians, right? God talks about using the Babylonians as his instrument of punishment for the things that Jerusalem had done. So we are not debating if it's right or wrong. What Obadiah about is what do you do in your heart when you see it happen? Because the reality is probably none of us in this room will ever order an airstrike. And thank God, right? I do not want that responsibility. But we will see it come across the ticker on the news that one has been ordered. And we have to ask ourselves, what happens in my heart when I see it? What kind of person am I being? And what kind of emotion do I give to seeing my enemies killed and blown up? And, tor and tortured, right? This is the way Obadiah puts it. Obadiah tries to remind us that we're all on the same plane. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. This is the foreign policy of Obadiah. Whatever you do, someday someone else is going to do it to you. Okay, and we spent a lot of time in these prophets talking about Assyria and Babylon and all these other places. And this is always what happens, right? Somebody rises to power, they kill a bunch of other people, and then eventually somebody else rises to power and kills them. It's just the way that nation states cycle in and out. Now, here's what I'm not trying to say. I want to be really clear. I'm not trying to tell you not to be a patriotic person, okay, or not to love your country. When the Olympics come on... I cheer for the USA. My children see the Russian flag now and they go, cheaters, right? Because of things that I have said during the Winter Olympics. I'm not necessarily proud of that, but it's true, right? They did. They were, chicked, they were kicked out for cheating, let's be honest. But, you know, like it's okay to sort of have that sort of friendly rivalry. It's okay to cheer for your country. And it's okay even to desire for the country you live in 
to be to do well and to be blessed and to be prosperous and all of those kinds of things. But we have this struggle as Christians that it's made very clear in the New Testament that our citizenship is not primarily of any nation, but it is that we are citizens of heaven, that we are God's people, that the passport that matters is the blood of Jesus Christ. And if that's true, it changes how you look at this stuff. It changes how you watch the news. It changes your rhetoric. And usually what it needs to do is it needs to trim back a little bit of that nationalism and jingoism and those things that cause us to love it when other people hurt. Right? To take joy in someone else's suffering. Um, to take it even really one step further, we have this really frustrating complication that at least the people of Judah and Israel and Edom, their religion and their country were tied together, right? If you were a Jew, you were part of the nation of Israel, and those things went together really well in the, in the Hebrew Bible. But for Christians, we don't have that luxury. So you've got to remember, whenever you see the things that are going on in the world, you have sisters and brothers in Christ. You have fellow family members who are suffering these things. Um, I was thinking this week about the atomic bombs in World War II, right? These are things that we're usually pretty gung-ho about, is, you know, because we, you know, that was what the good guys did to stop a war against bad guys. And I think about all those people. There's not a ton of Christians in 1940s Japan, okay? But do I believe with the millions who were incinerated that at least one or two of them weren't my brothers and sisters in Christ? They were. Uh, I'll get real meddly here. We got lots of Christians who talk about the Israel-Palestine issue, and Israel's the good guy and Palestine is the bad guys. Except for there's a significant portion of Palestinians who serve Jesus Christ as their Lord and Master. And so they are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And every time that we take one side, in the, and there's, frankly, there's Christians on both sides, right? There's uh, Messianic Jews that live in Israel as well. So we look at this conflict. We want to make it them, us, good, bad, ones we cheer for, ones we don't. But the reality is there are people following Jesus who live on both sides of that line. And when we have policy decisions and military actions, there are brothers and sisters of ours in Christ who die. The Syrian conflict that's going right around now, there is a Syrian Coptic church. There are followers of Jesus who are dying because of the way this goes down. And it makes it really complicated for us. It makes it so that when we see the news and we see some place was bombed, while our American self might go, yeah, we bombed somebody again, the Christian part of us could go, oh my God, some of my brothers and sisters probably just died. Right? Like, that's a challenge. That's a thing that we have to cope with and we have to deal with. And it's important because it does play back into the justice question. Because our hearts, I think, are malleable. And when we see these things and we respond with schadenfreude, when we respond with dancing on the graves of other people, no matter how bad those people are, it makes it a whole lot easier to pull the trigger next time, right? It makes it a whole lot easier to mistreat people that look like that who live in your neighborhood. And we may want to act like that's not a thing, but it is. We, you know, I've said this so many times. C.S. Lewis talks about how 
little decisions take you one way or the other. And your decision on how you process these things and whether or not you feel remorse and sadness about the death of others is going to make you be more or more for life or against life as you get older. More likely to treat people well or to treat people poorly. And so we have that decision kind of in front of us all the time. I love Obadiah because he's talking about brothers. And for Jacob and Esau and Edom and Judah, it's very easy to see themselves as brothers because they were literally brothers, right? But for those of us who are followers of of Christ, those of us who believe that God created us all in his image, every war and every conflict is always a, a war between brothers and sisters, right? It's always a war between children of God and other children of God. Um, It's my prayer that this book, as short and obscure and weird as it can seem, can remind us that our hearts need to be inclined towards love, even for people who aren't like us and even for people who have lied, cheated, and stole our birthright from us, right? Even people who have treated us poorly. Because if not, our hearts can become so dark that really terrible things can happen. And Obadiah is here to remind us that we should never go that way, that we have to kill the us-them dynamics to realize there's us, the children of God who are created in his image. All right. Um, we, at the end of all of our sermons, if you're new with us, do a Q&A period. We believe in dialogue. One of the, the article and outreach was all about how we like having conversations. So if there's anything about the scripture today or the application or any of those things that you'd like to ask about, we would love for you to ask those questions right now. So uh, let me respond to the question of what's the theological function of having sort of a child, a promise, a chosen child, the Jacob I love, Esau I have, what's a theological purpose? Uh, I'll, show, I'll say how it works. This doesn't mean I'm going to answer everything that you're going to love it, but this is why I think it's there. Um, for one, it just it defends God's sovereignty. It is supposed to be an affront to your sense of fairness because God is making clear to you he doesn't have to obey your sense of fairness, right? So some of it is just a demonstration of, I'm going to do what I want. Uh, But the other part of it is there's a sliding scale, right? There's things that are totally unfair, and then there's things that are totally fair. And if it's totally fair, it's a meritocracy. God only blesses the people who've earned it and who are good enough for it and who don't make mistakes and who aren't liars and cheaters and scumbags, but are perfect. And, and so you've, you've, I'm sure you've seen this with our, your kids, right? Sometimes you have a child who is the perfect little child that wants to do everything that you ask them because they want to get all the blessings of being the perfect child and they want to lord it over their siblings that they get things that the other siblings don't get because they're perfect, great little kids, right? And that, frankly, is a character defect as well, Right? This idea that I'm good enough that I earned it for myself. And Jacob and Esau is a story that tells, you know, the screw-ups of the world. If you're not the perfect sibling, if you didn't always do what mom and dad wanted, if you struggled to obey, that doesn't mean God doesn't love you. And ultimately, if you're going to have a religion based on grace then somebody is not going to be treated fairly on what they've done. The New Testament example of this is the prodigal son, right? 
where they got, the father welcomes home the prodigal son and loves him, and the older brother goes, what's the deal? I've been here the whole time. And scripture is critical that the older son and the younger son are both equally lost from their father. And I think that Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, is God's reminder that if you think you're going to earn my affection, if you think you're going to become a favored brother by doing all the law and then lording it over your brothers who struggle with it, you are not going to be that. And I think that's the theological function. Yeah, so how do we reconcile it with things that very clearly seem to say, hey, if people do right, they're going to be blessed. Um, we sometimes call this Deuteronomistic theology, which is a really fancy word that's theology based in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is very clear. If you do right, you will be blessed. If you do wrong, you will be cursed. Behave, right? And that goes throughout uh, many history books, and it's even there, as you mentioned, like Psalms and Proverbs, right? Um, I think the reality is God wants all of us. And so the scripture has got to provide us with things that guide us if we're different kinds of people. So if you're a natural rule follower, it, uh, you feel good and you are blessed by reading those scriptures about how good people will be rewarded and bad people will be punished because it reminds you you're not doing this for nothing. And you need these other passages to remind you not to become haughty and self-aggrandizing, right? But some of us are the opposite, right? You know, the, the, the drug addict that's on their last leg and has just done so much to mess up their own lives, right? They need to hear, it's not over. And God's love for you is not based on how obedient and good and follow the rules you've been. And for them, they need that hope. And if all that was in Scripture was like, do good and you'll be blessed, do bad and you'll be cursed, if you're somebody who's done bad for 30 years, there's no hope. You know, so there's a desire for repentance and change, but God's acceptance is not based. It's it's based on the heart, not on the action. Does that make sense? Now, the Bible does always keep these in tension, right? Because if you have a really great heart and it never changes behavior, you start to wonder how good the heart is, right? But on the flip side, um, if, you know, if, if you're just trying to be obedient to get, you know, heaven goodies, <laughs> it doesn't help either. And so, yeah, there, there is a message of repentance. Um, but when it comes to righteousness, ultimately the story is the son who has accepted home fully before he's done anything based purely on his spoken desire to come back. And then the father empowers him to then live a better life after that. And if there's no better life after that, it starts to question. Yeah. Um, let me put it this way. Uh, if you go through all of the patriarchs, all these stories in Genesis, God always picks the younger son. And the culture always told you to pick the older one. Right? So Abraham has Ishmael and Isaac. And obviously Isaac is child of promise. Um, and Ishmael is not. But still Ishmael is the oldest. Ishmael's not chosen. Isaac is because he's younger. Jacob and Esau. Esau's older. Jacob has chosen. Jacob has, which if I'm Benjamin, the 12th one, I'm like, come on, why couldn't we keep the pattern going? But, you know, like um, this is done over and over and over in these stories that the younger son is always chosen. 
And I think some of it is really God saying, I'm not doing things based on your culture. I'm doing them based on my decision. David is a similar example, right? When they try to pick a king, David's dad brings in all the boys but David because he's like, he's the runt. You don't want him. And Samuel goes, no, that's the one we want. And that is a very common theme through scripture. Um, so, yeah. Any other questions? Yeah, so I was appealing there to some of our more sinful selves. If we can't, if you're not yet to the maturity level that you're caring about all human beings, at the very least, we should be able to, uh, I would think Christians would be able to appreciate their own people. Does that make sense? And that particularly comes up in certain, um, well, let me be real explicit. Sometimes the, cult, the conflicts in our culture we see as conflicts between Jewish people and Muslim people. And as Christians, we tend to side with the Jews because we have the common heritage. But the reality is often in those situations, they're not all Muslims. Some of them are Christians too. And so it kind of throws out theological pedigree as a possible balancing place. But uh, yeah, I totally agree with you. I should be upset about poor little Muslim babies that die when we bomb someplace in Iraq, right? That should be disturbing to me enough. But then on top of it, not only uh, they might be, we're just sinful enough that we need that growing up in a Christian home too. And I think for some of us, we're just sinful enough that we need that extra little piece for it to kind of break through to our hearts. Does that make sense?